As editor of The Garden magazine, I'm always looking for new and interesting ways to write about gardening, and I think that July's issue does this in spades. We visit a special garden in the city. My garden is encompassed by uh, Victorian brick walling. I've softened that, and so you almost feel like you've extended your own garden. And enter into the gardens created by celebrated authors. There were 24 apple trees in the orchard, some slanting slightly, others growing straight with a rush up the trunk which spread wide into branches and formed into round red or yellow drops. Welcome to The Garden Podcast. I'm Chris Young. In each episode, I take a behind-the-scenes look and speak to the people who've written articles in our monthly magazine for RHS members. Now, prepare for your taste buds to tingle, as we're starting with a real treat, prepared by food writer, grower and photographer Mark Diacono. Mark's a great friend of the show and an all-round good guy, and he's been on a few times before, celebrating, amongst other things, gooseberries and rhubarb. But this month, it's all about currants. So tell me, why did you want to write about white and red currants? I really, really love them, Chris. And I know that you, amongst many, could point at me and go, tell me, Diakono, something you can eat that you don't love. But I I really do (laughs) love currants. Uh, I think they're underappreciated. And I actually find them, as a plant and as the fruit itself, I find them really beautiful. The flowers are small but glorious, if readers of the garden, as they'll see. The range of colours and shapes and sizes of the fruit itself, and they've been really beautifully captured. You know, they come alive on the page and they come alive in the hand and in the garden. And I quite like the underdog, you know, they're kind of underappreciated. And that makes me want to go, listen, have you, have you even considered the loveliness of the red currant, the white currant, you know? So people will know generally about currants, red, white or pink currants. But can you explain the flavour difference between them and give me a couple of examples that you wouldn't be without? It's really interesting, this, because they're... Flavour-wise, they're sort of on a spectrum. You know, it's not where you're suddenly turning a corner and going, well, that's an apple and that's a pear. Generally speaking, white are sweeter than red, which is interesting because logic might tell you that the redder they are, the kind of sweeter they are, the riper they are, but actually it's the other way around. Pink tend to be in the sweeter end as well. There are some really wonderful examples of different varieties that you should grow. I've grown the classic Yonkyus Van Tets and Stanza, both amazing red currants laxton's number one as well i've grown white Versailles and white pearl again which are really marvelous it's quite interesting for me about this concept of when you have something edible and especially fruit that is actually long-lived i mean these are proper um, shrubs in that sense and actually there's this idea that people maybe could embrace a bit more the uh, ornamental edible so that actually we grow rhubarb in our borders both for its leaf but also for its fruit and actually currants could be one of those it could be a real good stalwart at the back of any size garden and actually they'll have the ornamental value but of course they'll have the edible benefit too Exactly that. And one of the, you know, especially with the red and the white currants rather than black, yes, they love the sun and they're ripening more quickly in the sun. But if you've got a shadier area or you've got a north facing wall that you could train them against, you will get fruit that ripens. It will just ripen a bit later. So you've got an option there. You don't have a lot of options of what can I grow against a shady wall, you know, in terms of fruit and red and white currants all day long. Does it make a difference if you grow one selection in full sun compared to how it might taste if you grew the same selection in part shade? We're slightly at the mercy there of the English summer or the British summer. In a pretty good year, 
the one in shade will get there entirely beautifully to whatever state of ripeness that should be. And for some red currants, that's still quite tart and lovely and sour within with the sweet, but it will be behind ones that are in the sun. So for someone like me who loves the sour as much as the sweet, that's totally fine. And the other thing that gives you is a kind of natural way of giving a, a sense of succession. You know, you're not coming to the house with you know, a skip full of currants going, right, I need to use all these by Tuesday. You're getting a bit more of a drip, drip, drip by doing it like that. (laughs) It's always Tuesday, isn't it? It's always Tuesday, yeah. It's always, them and courgette, you can never get enough. (laughs) So you're a very multi-skilled chap, as um, we all know, and people who've either read or listened to you will be nodding in sincerity with me here. (laughs) But... uh, when you walk from the garden and you go back into the kitchen and you go into your home, what's your advice for using currants in the kitchen? You're not allowed to talk to me about summer pudding because that's just too easy. <laughs> but what is the what is the best way of keeping their flavour but also using them to impress your loved ones and your friends? I might have known that you would give me the equivalent of saying, it's your neighbour's 50th birthday. What will you get him? You're not allowed to get him a bottle of booze. You know, that's exactly <laughs> what that, that is the equivalent of. Um, because I do love summer pudding and it is very easy to make and it's delicious and wonderful. But there are many other things. And I think there's some key principles, I think, which are really nice, which is, you know, that balance of acidity and sweetness means that they both red and white and indeed pink all work well with sweet and savoury dishes. You know, you've got that bit of sharpness that cuts through fattiness. And that means that, if you have red currants, white currants, whatever, with the fattier meats, maybe lamb, venison, goose, that kind of thing, or even fatty fish like mackerel or bass, it would work really well. It does work really well. And you can make very simple, slightly sour salsas with any of the currants. But it also works dessert-wise in the same way. If you're doing something, I don't know, like a full top of a cheesecake, a knickerbocker glory, something with a lot of cream and richness, again, you get those little pockets of fruity, sweet but also sour that cuts through the whole thing and kind of makes the even the richness of it seem even more satisfying and and that's how i use a lot of them what about storing them and keeping them do they do freeze well don't they they? freeze amazingly well you know you, you don't get any sort of explosions that you can with some fruit as it defrosts or any collapsing you don't get any of the flavour degrading or anything like that, they keep all of their best qualities really, really well. Uh, And And, and you you freeze them from raw, do you, Mark? You don't do any cooking or any... Yeah, Yeah, and and I would suggest, if you've got a reasonable harvest, I would say one of the best things to do is to freeze them on a tray and then tip that into a bag because that way they're much easier to kind of not have to yeah, have they, a big they, they don't join together yeah, yeah they don't yeah. join together when you freeze when you take them out but you also you know they they do take remarkably well and i know this can be a curse sometimes with fruit if you say it makes really good preserves you know some people think yeah it's not very nice to eat is it they make very good jellies and jams and this is where maybe the sourer white currants are especially good if you're making a preserve or something frozen because you need that kind of punch of acidity if it's too sweet then everything comes out a bit one dimensional Mark Diacono. And there's plenty more tasty writing in this month's magazine. We've got a bit of everything in this issue, I reckon. From garden design to plant nurseries, plant profiles to wildlife features, and from the best opinion to the most timely of gardening advice. One of the most picturesque and perhaps well-photographed plants are echinaceas, those cone flowers that give great late-summer drama. 
with a beautiful photographic plate where we compare and contrast all the latest cultivars from an RHS plant trial. This month's article shows you the best of the best and gives advice on how to look after them in your garden. Also this month, a subject I'm really passionate about, and that's British cut flowers. Over the years, we've followed the network called Flowers from the Farm, which is a collection of more than 800 people growing and using cut flowers. There are some lovely stories in this feature, and it shows how imaginative and creative people can be with seasonal, attractive and commercial flowers grown right here in the UK. The Garden Magazine is where we collect the best minds to write about the green world. But putting flora and fauna onto the page has always been a part of literature in a much wider sense. Authors throughout history have been inspired by gardens. From Ovid to Shakespeare to Virginia Woolf, literary verdant spaces have taken readers to captivating green worlds. From In the Orchard by Virginia Woolf Miranda slept in the orchard, lying in a long chair beneath the apple tree. The opals on her finger, flushed green, flushed rosy, and again flushed orange as the sun oozing through the apple trees filled them. Then, when the breeze blew, her purple dress rippled like a flower attached to a stalk. The grasses nodded, and the white butterfly came blowing this way and that, just above her face. Roald Dahl's original inspiration for James and the Giant Peach is thought to have been a cherry tree. And Beatrix Potter's vegetable patch from the tale of Peter Rabbit is well known the world over. In this month's edition, writer Louise Johnson takes us on a tour of her favourite fictional gardens and the real-life areas they were inspired by. In many senses we need to forget that words are the thing we see on the page. Words are all around us. Stories are all around us. You tell a story the way you walk down a street. You tell a story where you place your shrubs, where you place your plants, where you arrange them. From the Secret Island by Enid Blyton. They lay on their heathery beds and listened to all the sounds of the night. They heard a little grunt of a hedgehog going by. They saw the flicker of bats overhead. One of the most potent gardens for me was the garden of Enid Blyton. I was living down south for a while and I was just about to move back up to Yorkshire. And I kind of realised in the final weeks that Enid Blyton's garden was just around the corner and I'd never visited. At that point, it was open to the public. You entered through a lit gate and it was one of the most surreal, potent moments of my life because this garden was like this trapped moment of Englishness. It was like walking into a um, point in time that had frozen in some sense. The thatched cottage, the low box hedging. There was a basket of windfall apples that had been sort of carefully piled up next to the tree. And it was so instantly, wildly evocative of Enid Blyton's kind of timeless children's work, that it was an incredibly moving experience in some senses to think you are walking the same landscape. So I think my interest in gardens began there. They smelt the drifting scent of honeysuckle and the delicious smell of wild thyme crushed under their bodies. 
A reed warbler sang a beautiful little song in the reeds below, and then another answered. I'm also interested in the way that people like Beatrix Potter handle landscape. Hilltop was Beatrix Potter's home and garden in the Lake District, and when she died, she left it specifically to the National Trust. And the garden is one of those intensely English gardens. You have very rich, thick beds. You have evocative, loose planting. But you also have the vegetables present. You also have the things that you recognise from the stories. Flopsy, Mopsy and Cottontail, who were good little bunnies, went down the lane to gather blackberries. But Peter, who was very naughty, ran straight away to Mr McGregor's garden and squeezed under the gate. First he ate some lettuces and some French beans. Then he ate some radishes and then, feeling rather sick, he went to look for some parsley. But round the end of a cucumber frame, who should he meet but Mr McGregor? Hilltop is one of those sites where you have this planting that is changing softly and murmuring and talking back to you in some senses with the wind and the weather and the sounds of people around it. So she can give you everything that she saw in this world because she captured it with such finesse in her really beautiful, delicate and yet very honest artwork. She translated it from the landscape through to the page with such um, an immediacy. One of the writers that I mentioned in the article is a writer called Virginia Woolf, who many of you will know of. She was part of the Bloomsbury Group and she lived with her husband in a monk's house in East Sussex. Virginia herself wasn't the gardener in many senses, but that was for Leonard. But she translated the the richness of her very powerful, lush, rich, beautiful garden into her work, into a variety of manners. Miranda slept in the orchard. Or was she asleep or was she not asleep? Her purple dress stretched between the two apple trees. There were 24 apple trees in the orchard, some slanting slightly, others growing straight with a rush up the trunk which spread... That kind of intimate eye for landscape and the sensations of being within this magical otherworldly space. In the Orchard is one of her short stories, which was first published in 1923 in a magazine. And it tells a moment of a girl in an orchard considering life, really. And in some senses, it's not about the girl at all. Wolf spins around her. She picks up the sound of the bees, of the church bells in the distance. And these are all things that she would have had in her home at Monk's House in uh, Sussex. And every inch of that story is full of a certain heat, a warmth. And I think, in in a sense, it's that warmth that you only get in a very enclosed, still garden where the walls are up around you, where the trees are low and the heat is warm and thick. It's a tribute to not only the landscape around her, that immediate world that she lived in, but you can almost feel her writing it on a really hot, thick day where the air is so still that you can almost hear yourself breathe. (laughs) 
I think gardens are important to writers on a number of levels, not only in what they show can be achieved with a little bit of work, a little bit of effort, and the development of that achievement. No story is static, no planting is static. You place a tree here, a shrub there, and you see it evolve and you watch it move and change and shift over the seasons. Louise Johnson. I love reading about gardens in fiction, and I'm acutely aware of the role outdoor spaces can play in literature. Often, gardens are a backdrop to the story, helping create the tone and the literary landscape. Well-known and much more recent books often do this. For example, Sarah Perry's The Essex Serpent wouldn't have had such a broad story horizon without the landscape and garden depicted. So too Sarah Waters, that superb author of Fingersmith, whose gloomy mansion is painted in such vivid detail with the walled gardens, streams, gravel drives and endless gloom and cold from the window. It's all captivating and exciting stuff, and it just goes to show how important gardens are to those creative storytellers, whether they realise it or not. For some, gardens and books are the most significant green spaces they encounter. In big cities, for example, outdoor greenery is at a premium. However, even the smallest of plots can become outdoor oases. In this month's magazine, we hear from experienced garden designer Bradley Fullion. He's managed to create a dynamic, interesting garden in London that definitely feels bigger than it is. I wanted to find out more, and he started by describing his garden. The front is based on quite sort of Georgian lines and into that I've incorporated clipped topiary and a huge focal point at the end of a very small stone path. So that's the setting, the scene. Once you walk through the garden, you go into the back. What I've done is treat it differently, but I've brought it together by using quite a lot of unifying elements. So we've got gravel paths throughout the space. We've got quite hard edges that give us some sense of structure and bring everything neatly together. And then I've used some different types of planting, but the predominantly it has a look of a sort of woodland. Very loose and quite romantic. Where do you get your ideas and inspiration from? Because as you've just outlined, there's lots of elements to this and you're obviously working off the reference of the architecture and the the spaces that you have. But what motivates and excites you as a designer? Basically, structure. I'm quite a formal sort of person and I always put formality into my garden. I find that exciting. And once I've cracked that, then I start looking at what we can do to make the place softer and more inviting. But I think what really drives me is I have a visual retentive memory. So that memory bank, I'm constantly drawing on. And it's amazing, you keep it inside and then it can be two, three, four years down the line when suddenly you go to a garden, you meet a client and you start talking and something triggers the client either says or they have in their house, it could even be an ornament. And that triggers that memory bank. And once that starts, I'm off and running. 
looking at the photography of the garden, it really is interesting because there are so many elements, especially from the planting. But one of the things I really like is actually quite a simple treatment, which is the way you've screened a wall at the back of the back garden. Yes. And you've just got ivy growing up it. And it seems we haven't met before and I haven't been to your garden, but it doesn't seem there's no, there's no plant snobbery going on. It's about practical use of plants for their right position and their right use. Yes, absolutely. I think one of the things when you've got a small garden is you have to blur those boundaries. And I've done that through evergreen planting, which then links to the gardens behind. Where I live, fortunately, we have a massive green corridor, so the gardens are quite large to the back of us. So I've sort of borrowed that landscape by making all of that hard edging, and my garden is encompassed by uh, Victorian brick walling. I've softened that, and so my greenery grows to the top, and then suddenly you're looking into the neighbour's garden, so you almost feel like you've extended your own garden. Plants are obviously an essential part of any good garden design, and texture is often a key element of planting. How do you like to use texture in plants, and are there some great combinations that you're really passionate about? Yeah, I think texture is very, very key to a garden. I mean, we've all been to gardens where, you know, they're all either very delicate floriferous or they've got masses of planting in one particular vein, for example, Jacques Verts. And they do work in certain spaces, but I think in smaller gardens, you definitely need to look at texture more closely. So you get that sort of visual excitement, but a soothing, you get hard and soft, that yin and yang. And I think once you've cracked a combination, a textural combination, using that as an accent and as a repetition throughout the garden gives it some rhythm. One of the things I was taught when I was training as a garden designer, I had a brilliant tutor who said to me, squint your eyes, it removes the colour and it gives you the ability to look at the textures and forms of the plants more closely. (laughs) And I think that works. It works so well because what we're all guilty of is we look at things in isolation. And one of the things people must do is think of the bigger picture. But I do have some combinations that I like time and time again. One of my favourite early summer ones is Celine Fimbriata with Aerometallicum and white-stemmed betulas. And for those that don't know Celine Fimbriata, um, what a wonderful little plant that is. It's so delicate, the most beautiful little white flowers, but tough as old boots because it grows at the base of trees, dry areas. So it's a winner. So that's one I use time and time again in difficult situations. Bradley Fullion. Do you have an urban oasis? I'd love to see how it's coming along. You can get in touch on social media with the hashtag RHS Podcast. And for more information on everything covered today, head to the website rhs.org.uk forward slash the garden podcast. Next month, we'll be focusing on the August edition of the magazine. I'm really looking forward to finding out more about the different hibiscus selections on offer, hardy cacti for growing outdoors, and learning all about cucumbers. What a mix! Well, that's about it for this episode, and I'll let you get back to enjoying the Garden Magazine. But for now, from me, Chris Young, thanks for listening. <laughs>